considering the fourth term of communion, and we are looking at the Solemn League and Covenant this evening. And let me read for you again the the fourth term of communion. Have a little bit of problem there with the seat. Okay. Says that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. That the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution, and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person, and in consistency with this, that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas, 1712, was agreeable to the Word of God. I want to, first of all, just give a brief history surrounding the Solemn League and Covenant. Some of this will be review, but uh, I want to include this in this tape so this tape has a sense of uh, completeness about it that people don't necessarily have to go back to previous tapes, but they can listen to this one tape and get uh, a good overview of the Solemn League and Covenant. And so let us discuss then briefly uh, events surrounding uh, the Solemn League and Covenant and uh, ask the question, what were the major causes leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant? And we're going to mention three causes that led up to this particular covenant between the kingdoms of Scotland England and Ireland. The first major cause is that of the divine right of kings. Now this theory of the divine right of kings asserted that kings essentially ruled as God, not simply on behalf of God, but ruled as God over their kingdoms in both the civil and ecclesiastical realm. They had absolute supremacy in both uh, the civil realm and the ecclesiastical realm. If there were parliaments or church councils, they served in an adversarial, uh, I'm sorry, an ad, uh, advisory, an advisory capacity for the uh, ruler could essentially veto whatever the parliament or the church council had voted on. The ruler could replace members of parliament. He could replace uh, uh, council members in the church council. Uh, he or she could actually punish those who dared to uh, oppose in any way his or her will as a monarch. And beginning with Henry VIII all the way through James II, this tyrannical abuse of authority ravaged England, Ireland, and Scotland. And the Solemn League and Covenant addressed not only the abuses in the church, but also the abuses in the civil realm within the nation. 
For example, within the civil realm, the Solemn League and Covenant defines the biblical role and duties of the civil magistrate. Now, under this heading of the divine right of kings, one particular application of this uh, tyrannical rule was that doctrine known as Erastianism. That's another uh, word that will come up underneath this whole discussion of the divine right of kings, Erastianism, which was named after Thomas Erastus, a physician at Heidelberg, who defended his view in 1568. Erastus is not to be confused, however, with Erasmus. Uh, this is Thomas Erastus. Now, Erastianism places the church under the immediate headship of the monarch, of the civil government, virtually combining the civil government and the ecclesiastical government into one, so that the keys of the kingdom are, in reality, which are supposed to be in the hands of only the ministers of the church, the keys of the kingdom are actually placed into the hands of the civil ruler. Essentially, the state usurps, therefore, the crown rights of Jesus Christ as the mediatorial king over his church. <clears throat> the second major cause, leaving now the divine right of kings, moving on to the second major cause, the second major cause leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant was the doctrine of worship and government promoted by prelacy. And so, prelacy. Prelacy is the false system of worship and government wherein church authority is invested in the hand of a bishop or an archbishop or their representatives called curates. Instead of ecclesiastical authority being placed in the hands of an assembly of presbyters or elders, which is the biblical form of church government, authority is consolidated and centralized in the hand of a bishop. And this bishop does not necessarily have to teach, be especially qualified to teach, to preach, to instruct, uh, he's simply given authority. This bishop is simply given authority to rule. And he may rule over several uh, congregations and never even visit. It's possible that these hierarchical bishops may never visit within their bishopric, within that time that they're a bishop, never visit the congregations over which they're a bishop. Now, that's not what the scripture speaks of when it, when it addresses that there are bishops over churches. In the New Testament, we find the office of bishop, but the office of bishop is essentially the office of a pastor. And he rules over one congregation along with the ruling elders. And he is apt to teach. He preaches. He instructs. He doesn't simply govern, but he preaches and teaches as well. 
Uh, that was quite different uh, under prelacy. Bishop didn't have to be able to preach or teach. He wasn't examined in theology. He wasn't qualified. It was more a, uh, a bribe many times, uh, a favor that was granted uh, that a person would reach that office of be- becoming a bishop, not because he was qualified to serve in that capacity. As one can imagine, therefore, the occasion for abuse of authority was greatly enhanced by this unbiblical system. Prelacy was the form of church government that best suited the divine right of kings. That's why you had prelacy and Erastianism or prelacy and divine right of king working very closely together. Now, this is essentially the same form of government with some minor differences, but essentially the same form of government practiced by the Romish church as well. Now, because this form of government was borrowed from the Romish church, so along with prelacy came many of the popish ceremonies and worship, the superstitions that were prevalent within Rome also came into the Church of England. Even the Arminianism of Rome was imported along with the uh, prelacy. Now this is, I think, all uh, and understandable. uh, It's very logical how this all flows. For prelacy, itself is a man-instituted form of government. So it brought along with it man-instituted ceremonies into worship and taught a man-centered doctrine of salvation. That's why it's very important to build a church government upon upon a God-centered church government, Christ-centered, because, again, what flows from that is a Christ-centered, a God-centered worship, God-centered doctrine. But if it begins to break down, see, in the whole area of church government is the preservation. That's what church government does. It preserves faithful teaching and faithful worship. But if you institute a man-centered church government, God-centered doctrine and God-centered worship is going to fall by the wayside eventually. Prelacy, therefore, is an arch enemy of Presbyterianism, for Presbyterianism teaches that Christ is the head of the church. It doesn't teach that, uh, that there's an archbishop that is the uh, head of the church. It doesn't teach that the king or civil government is the head of the church. It doesn't teach that the pope is the head of the church. Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. And his word is the constitution of the church in doctrine, worship, and government. And therefore, prelacy and Presbyterianism are indeed antithetical one to to the other. In fact, the Presbyterians at the time of the Westminster Assembly did not believe that the unbiblical system of prelacy should even be tolerated by the church or state. 
And that was, as we will see, one of the purposes for the solemn league and covenant was to covenant so as to uproot that so as to uproot to extirpate that's what extirpate refers to uprooting a prelacy from uh, those kingdoms of Scotland, Ireland, and England. Presbyterianism taught that it alone was of divine right, the only church government authorized by scripture. And thus it taught that prelacy was, in fact, tyranny. And so this was, again, the second major cause leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant. The third and final major cause leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant was the desire of these three kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland to be solemnly united together in a civil league and an ecclesiastical covenant. And so when we talk about the solemn league and covenant, the league has to do with the civil realm. It was a civil league and the covenant has to do with an ecclesiastical covenant. So this this solemn league and covenant uh, met both of those desires to have these three kingdoms united together both ecclesiastically and civilly, though they maintained their separate parliaments. There was yet a union uh, working together in, in reformation of religion in both the church and being promoted by the state so as to secure the liberties of both the state and the church for all uh, the citizens within uh, those nations. And so, under this third and final cause leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant, let me note um, just a couple items here. First of all, the Westminster Assembly <clears throat> uh, met and believed that God's glory and their mutual interests as individual kingdoms would best be realized if they covenanted together to maintain and to defend their respective biblical duties, the duties of both king and subject within their nations. And thus, a political covenant brought representatives from these three kingdoms together. However, the Westminster Assembly also believed God's glory and the benefit of Christ's church within these three nations would best be realized if they covenanted together to bring about the nearest uniformity in doctrine, worship, and government. And that was, again, one of the goals of this covenant. To bind them together to their biblical duties as not only subjects, but as rulers within these kingdoms to observe God's law. And then, as well, within the church to bring the churches within these kingdoms to the uh, nearest uniformity in doctrine, worship, and government. And so this solemn league and covenant was the very first document that was issued by the Westminster Assembly. 
It was ratified, signed and ratified by the Westminster Assembly on September the 25th, 1643. The Solemn League and Covenant uh, was written by uh, Alexander Henderson, the primary author of this document. Uh, there were uh, some minor changes uh, as or amendments uh, to this uh, Solemn League and Covenant, but uh, the primary author was the Scottish Commissioner and Minister uh, Alexander Henderson. All right. Well, that I believe gives us a little bit of a of an overview as to the events that were. Uh, and major causes leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant in the Westminster Assembly. Now, I'd like to uh, uh, read for you next the act of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, which approved the uh, Solemn League and Covenant. I think reading some of these acts is very interesting as well as very helpful just to to confirm what these uh, these men were saying by adopting these uh, covenants. This is uh, from the acts of the General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland uh, from August 17, 1643. And... Uh, this was actually uh, voted on by the General Assembly before it was uh, uh, before it was actually sent to the um, Westminster Assembly by the General Assembly of Scotland in August, ratified by the Westminster Assembly, as we said, in September. But anyway, August 17, 1643. And this uh, is entitled, this act is entitled Approbation of the League and Covenant, above mentioned. Says the assembly having recommended unto a committee appointed by them to join with the committee of the honorable convention of estates and the commissioners of the honorable houses of the parliament of England for bringing the kingdoms to a more near conjunction and union received from the aforesaid committees the covenant above mentioned as the result of their consultations. And having taken the same as a matter of so public concernment and of so deep importance doth require unto their gravest consideration, did with all their hearts and with the beginning of the feeling of that joy which they did find in so great measure upon the renovation of the national covenant of this Kirken kingdom. It was last time we talked about the national covenant of Scotland. That's what was just referred to continues now all with one voice approve and embrace the same as the most powerful mean by the blessing of God for settling and preserving the true Protestant religion with perfect peace in his majesty's dominions and propagating the same to other nations and for establishing his majesty's throne to all ages and generations and therefore with their best affections recommend the same to the honorable convention of estates 
that being examined and approved by them, it may be sent with all diligence to the kingdom of England, that being received and approved there, the same may be with public humiliation and all religious and answerable solemnity sworn and subscribed by all true professors of the Reformed religion and all His Majesty's good subjects in both kingdoms. So that was the act approbating the Solemn League and Covenant from the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. I want to just briefly touch upon the matter of the perpetual obligation. We've looked at this again, so this is not entirely new matter, but the perpetual obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant as well. And I'll just uh, uh, run through a few points here seeking to demonstrate the the, uh, obligation that rests upon uh, not only those who swore the covenant, but upon uh, all of their posterity as well. First of all, all nations, territories, and dominions that have descended from Great Britain are bound to uphold and to defend the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643. The Solemn League and Covenant, secondly, is a civil covenant. We might also add it's not only a civil covenant, but it is also a personal covenant as well as an ecclesiastical covenant. And we'll consider that as we look through the six articles, uh, summarize the six articles of the Solemn League and Covenant. But it is a civil covenant. It's an ecclesiastical uh, ecclesiastical covenant, and it is a uh, personal covenant as well. But as a civil covenant... The Solemn League and Covenant binds all those civil governments of nations that fall under it. All those civil governments that are descended from Great Britain are indeed bound by the Solemn League and Covenant. In fact, the Westminster Assembly considered, and I quote, all His Majesty's dominions, end of quote, bound by the Solemn League and Covenant which included, even at that period in history, the colonies in America and uh, certain uh, sections and territories uh, in Canada. But even if uh, a nation was not at that particular point uh, comprehended under Great Britain, but subsequently became a part of Great Britain, it as well would be a descendant and thereby bound by that same covenant. I read for you just again a quote from the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. This is um, June the 4th, 1644. It states there, Those winds which for a while do trouble the air do withal purge and refine it. And our trust is that through the most wise providence and blessing of God, the truth by our so long continued agitations will be better cleared among us. And so our service will prove more acceptable to all the churches of Christ, but more especially to you, while we have an attentive eye 
to our peculiar protestation and to that public sacred covenant that's referring to the solemn league and covenant entered into by both the kingdoms for uniform uniformity in all his majesty's excuse me in all his majesty's dominions the third uh, point under the perpetual obligation of this covenant is that even as the as the lawful covenant of a father binds all his children presently living as well as those who are yet to be born. If a father makes a lawful covenant with God and in that covenant binds his posterity, not only he's not simply binding himself, but he mentions in that covenant that he's binding his posterity and it's a lawful covenant, then his posterity is bound by that covenant. We read in Malachi 2.10, Have we not all one father? This is Israel speaking, uh, Malachi speaking on behalf of Israel. Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? You see, the covenant of our fathers which was made generations, hundreds of years before, because God in that covenant, or the people, Moses, and subsequent generations, in the covenant they made with God, bound themselves and their posterity, they were therefore bound. They could not release themselves if it was indeed a lawful, moral covenant. And if that's true of individuals within a nation, it's also true then uh, that lawful civil covenants of national parents likewise bind their national progeny or descendants. If that's true individually of families, then it's true nationally as well. And if one is willing to grant that the lawful covenant of a father can, in fact, bind even one of his descendants, he must be therefore willing to grant that that same lawful covenant binds all of his de descendants. For the same moral obligation that rests upon any one descendant rests upon all descendants and so therefore not only are individuals bound by the covenants of their forefathers when they are included within that covenant again assuming uh, that it is a lawful covenant but even nations as well that covenant and those descendants, those national entities that descend from them are also bound. And so, therefore, uh, fourthly, the United States and Canada as nations and all other national descendants of Great Britain are children of Great Britain and are bound by the lawful covenant of their national father, 
solemnly sworn with uplifted hands to the living God in 1643, and which covenant was renewed on various occasions in Scotland and the United States by Reformed and Presbyterian Christians. Fifthly, under the perpetual obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant, the passing of time, this is very critical, the passing of time, the changing of national laws, the changing of national constitutions, or the moving of national boundaries, the union with another nation, the separation from a nation, any of these cannot annul or alter the lawful covenants made with God. For it is God himself who is the other party to the solemn league and covenant. You see, if it was only a covenant between men, then if the other party annulled the covenant, if the other party was unfaithful to the covenant, that would release the, the second party to that covenant. But because this covenant was made with the living God, and because he has not been unfaithful to that covenant, he has honored it, we are therefore bound, regardless of what anybody else does, we're still bound to keep it because that covenant was made with the, with the eternal, everlasting God. And this is exactly what the, the assembly, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland says through, uh, through its official acts. Again, quoting from the Acts of General Assembly, first of all, uh, the date uh, here is July the 27th, 1649 says, albeit the League and Covenant, that is the Solemn League and Covenant, be despised by that prevailing party in England and the work of uniformity through the retardments and obstructions that have come in the way be almost forgotten by these kingdoms, yet the obligation of that covenant is perpetual and all the duties contained therein are constantly to be minded and prosecute by every one of us and our posterity according to their place and stations. Another quote from the Acts of the General Assembly, this time August the 6th, uh, 1649. Although there were none in the one kingdom who did adhere to the covenant, Yet thereby were not the other kingdom nor any person in either of them absolved from the bond thereof. Since in it we have not only sworn by the Lord, but also covenanted with him. It is not the falling of one or more that can absolve others from their duty or tie to him. That is to God. Besides the duties therein contained being in themselves lawful and the grounds of our tie thereunto moral, though others do forget their duty 
Yet doth not their defection free us from that obligation which lies upon us by the covenant in our places and stations. And the covenant being intended and entered into by these kingdoms as one of the best means of steadfastness for guarding against declining times, it were strange to say that the backsliding of any should absolve others from the tithe thereof especially seeing our engagement therein is not only national, but also personal. Every one with uplifted hands swearing by himself, as it is evident by the tenor of the covenant. And then one more quote uh, under this uh, fifth point. And this quote is taken from the uh, same date uh, August the 6th 1649 from the Acts of General Assembly from these and other important reasons it may appear that all these kingdoms joining together to abolish that oath by law yet could they not dispense therewith much less can any one of them or any part of them do the same. The dispensing with oaths hath hitherto been abhorred as anti-Christian and never practiced and avowed by any but by that man of sin. That is the papacy. Therefore, those who take the same upon them as they join with him in his sin, that is in the sin of the Antichrist, the man of sin, the papacy, those who join with him in, uh, in uh, abjuring their covenants and vows. So the, the, so the act of General Assembly says, so must they expect to partake of his plagues. <clears throat> and then, under the perpetual obligation, I want to also indicate the sixth point that the solemn league and covenant was actually approved by and in the process of being adopted by not only the churches of Scotland, England and Ireland, but was in the process of being adopted by the reformed church of the Netherlands, as well as by other national reformed churches in Europe. This was not simply looked upon as being a British covenant. A covenant amongst the nations of the British Isles. No, it was looked upon as beginning there, but it was intended to spread throughout the whole world to be an ecumenical covenant. And to that end, let me read for you from uh, Hetherington's History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines. This is found in pages uh, 337 to 339, these quotes. Hetherington says, There was one great, even sublime idea brought somewhat indefinitely before the Westminster Assembly, which has not been realized. The idea of a Protestant union throughout Christendom, not merely for the purpose of counterbalancing popery, but in order to purify, strengthen, and unite all true Christian churches, 
so that with combined energy and zeal they might go forth in glad compliance with the Redeemer's commands, teaching all nations and preaching the everlasting gospel to every creature under heaven. This truly magnificent and also truly Christian idea seems to have originated in the mind of that distinguished man, Alexander Henderson. It was suggested by him to the Scottish commissioners and by them partially brought before the English Parliament, requesting them to direct the assembly to write letters to the Protestant churches in France, Holland, Switzerland, and other Reformed churches. Along with these letters were sent copies of the Solemn League and Covenant, a document which might itself form the basis of such a Protestant union. The deep-thinking divines of the Netherlands apprehended the idea and in their answer not only expressed their approbation of the covenant, but also desired to join in it with the British kingdoms. Nor did they content themselves with the mere expression of approval and willingness to join. A letter was soon afterwards sent to the assembly from The Hague written by Dureus the celebrated John Dury, offering to come to the assembly and containing a copy of a vow which he had prepared and tendered to the distinguished Oxenstern, Chancellor of Sweden, wherein he bound himself to prosecute a reconciliation between Protestants and point of religion. But the intrigues of politicians, the delays caused by the conduct of the independents, and the narrow-minded Erastianism of the English Parliament all conspired to prevent the assembly from entering farther into that glorious, truly glorious Christian enterprise. Days of trouble and darkness came. Persecution wore out the great men of that remarkable period. Pure and vital Christianity was stricken to the earth and trampled underfoot. And so we see that the Solemn League and Covenant was intended to extend not only to the British kingdoms but to other nations as well. And I read you one other little note. And this is just in the introduction, one of the acts approving uh, the uh, Solemn League and Covenant. But notice it says this. I think this was one I read earlier in the uh, study, but this is what it says. This is August the 17th, 1643, from the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. All with one voice approve and embrace the same as the most powerful mean by the blessing of God for settling and preserving the true Protestant religion with perfect peace in his majesty's dominions and propagating the same to other nations and for establishing his majesty's throne to all ages and generations to other nations as well. Another, moving on from the perpetual obligation now, I'd like to note for you that the Solemn League and Covenant 
was not uh, an optional covenant that people could uh, choose to own or not to own if they lived within these kingdoms. The solemn legal covenant was a term of communion in the Reformed and Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And again, uh, we, we considered the acts of the General Assembly of Scotland. Let me read for you just very briefly here a few of these important acts from the assembly. First of all, August the 19th, 1643, we find these words. This is a letter sent to the commissioners to enforce this covenant. It says, and to send their directions to sessions, presbyteries, and synods for execution of their orders there anent, and with power to proceed against any person whatsoever that shall refuse to subscribe and swear the said covenant with all the censures of the Kirk. Anyone who refused to subscribe the Solemn League and Covenant, obstinately refused to do so, would be under the censures of the Church of Scotland. We find again, August the 20th, 1647, these words. Again, from the same assembly. Such as would not take the covenant were declared to be public enemies to their religion and country and that they are to be censured and punished as professed adversaries and malignants. And then the act of the General Assembly, August the 7th, 1648, says, The General Assembly, according to former recommendations, doth ordain that all young students take the covenant at their first entry to colleges, and that hereafter all persons whatsoever take the covenant at their first receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, requiring hereby provincial assemblies, presbyteries, and universities to be careful that this act be observed, and a comp thereof taken in the visitation of universities and particular kirks and in the trial of presbyteries. And so, very clearly, this was not an insignificant uh, document. This was a term of communion in the Church of Scotland. Those who would not subscribe or own the covenant would not come to the Lord's table Uh, If they were obstinate, they would be censured by the church. If they were obstinate and undermined the covenanted reformation of uh, Scotland, they would be subjected to civil uh, penalties as well. Now, there, I want to note, moving on from the, uh, this point about the solemn leak and covenant being a term of communion, now looking at, uh, uh, the next point, and that is that there are clear cases of covenant breaking, and uh, I won't uh, cite all of these in the, uh, as far as the uh, 
documentation, but let me simply mention these these instances of covenant breaking. Um, the forces of Cromwell uh, in England, the independence there, um, and uh, particularly the independence, because of their tolerationist uh, ideas, uh, undermined and broke the covenants. In fact, the Acts of General Assembly, July the 27th, 1649, specifically says that they, that they buried, they outlawed the covenants in England. They outlawed the Solemn League and Covenant in England. And uh, thereby, the covenant which they swore to God, they broke very clearly. The same, not, we're not talking about a succeeding generation. We're talking about the same people who swore the covenant to God, broke it, and outlawed it within the nation. Secondly, we find uh, historically the malignants or covenant breakers within Scotland. Uh, there were many of those within Scotland who fell away, dis- defected from the covenant as well. They were called malignants because they were cancerous uh, to the cause of a covenant of reformation. They had defected, corrupted themselves by becoming covenant breakers, which is a violation. Covenant breaking is a violation of the third commandment. It's a violation of the ninth commandment, both. Furthermore, uh, another classic example of covenant breaking was the Restoration Church under Charles II. Uh, Charles II had actually, after the death of his father, in order to be admitted as king uh, within Scotland, had sworn uh, the covenant on two different occasions. And once he... uh, once he had the, his hands on the reins of authority and power, he completely turned his back upon the covenant. It was simply a case of gaining the power. And then once he had that power in hand, he abjured and, uh, and broke uh, the covenant entirely. In fact, he had it burned. He had it buried he had in what is called the Acts Recissory. He, he had all Acts of General Assembly that had anything to do with the Covenanted Reformation from about 1638 to 1649. That whole period of Covenanted Reformation, he had them completely outlawed, annulled, and eliminated. Everything that was done uh, uh, within that period of time, by Parliament and General Assembly, was completely outlawed. And so he restored the church under a covenant-breaking system and actually persecuted those who did keep the covenant. And then the Revolution Church, the fourth classic case of covenant-breaking, was the Revolution Church under William and Mary. When, uh, uh, after the death of or after not the uh, well after the death of Charles II, James II became king, and uh, he was um, he was not king for too many years. I think for uh, two or three years, if I'm not mistaken. Before there was such an insurrection within the nation uh, that he had to flee uh, the country, and 
uh, William and Mary, uh, then William from uh, the Netherlands, uh, became uh, the ruling monarch. William and Mary both the ruling monarchs. But the system of uh, church government that was established was an Erastian church government. Uh, the Church of Scotland was under the thumb of the civil magistrate, which violates completely Presbyterianism. And there were many, many concessions made. There was no restoration of the original covenants, uh, the attainments of the Second Reformation uh, in the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. There was uh, simply uh, an affirmation of the, of the confession of faith, not even of specifically stated the catechisms or the directory for public worship or the, or the form of Presbyterian government. None of those other documents produced by the Westminster Assembly were not affirmed by the Revolution Church. The act, that, that uh, act recissory uh, that I mentioned earlier that Charles II had, had enacted, that was not repealed by the Revolution Church. The covenants were not uh, again affirmed and sworn and subscribed. They were allowed to remain burned and buried. And yet these were the descendants, the posterity of those who had sworn the covenants. They were bound by these covenants. And so uh, there was a great falling away of the Revolution Church, even though persecution in its most uh, obvious forms ended with, with William and Mary coming to the throne. Uh, nevertheless, it was a much more subtle, crafty type of encroachment uh, upon uh, the true church, the true Reformed and Presbyterian churches. And then finally, uh, let me simply note under this, these clear cases of covenant breaking that all Presbyterian churches that, are that have descended from the Revolution Church of Scotland or from the English Presbyterian Church uh, have also, unless they have affirmed the, the attainments of the Second Reformation, unless those have been their terms of communion as they were uh, the terms of communion for the Church of Scotland, the Church of England, uh, and Ireland at that time, if they have not affirmed those attainments, they have as well defected and fallen away from the, uh, from the covenants as well. And that would include, um, as I said, all churches that have descended from the Revolution Church, the Church of Scotland, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, American Presbyterianism, most of your Presbyterian churches throughout the world uh, have fallen into that whole um, area of defection from the covenanted reformation, which they are bound by the Solemn League and Covenant. Okay, now we come to the last point, and that is a brief overview of the Solemn League and Covenant. And so if you have your... your um, Volume entitled The Westminster Confession of Faith, produced by the, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, the uh, uh, pages 358 to 359, we find the Solemn League and Covenant. And I want to just very briefly um, highlight for you this, uh, the six articles there. First section of the Solemn League and Covenant is just a preface, an introduction, and uh, 
It begins, we noblemen, barons, knights, gentlemen, citizens, burgesses, ministers of the gospel, and commons of all sorts in the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland. And uh, being of one reformed religion, and it goes on in the preface to talk about that the purpose is for to bring these three kingdoms to the nearest uniformity in, in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. Now, uh, before I move on to Article 1, I might just mention, some might say, how can we swear uh, this covenant since um, there are certain details about the covenant, certain circumstances about the covenant that no longer apply to, to us. For example, um, uh, when it speaks of the, um, the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland, um, well, I think Canada still would be uh, could certainly consider itself under that category as far as under the uh, uh, kingdom of uh, England or Great Britain. But uh, the United States certainly would not consider itself as being uh, under uh, the dominion of, um, of Great Britain or England. Uh, that was what uh, uh, their war for independence was all about in 1776 and following. And uh, the Declaration of Independence was to state that they're not bound by, uh, and they are making that separation. And so uh, many Presbyterians in the United States might say, well, how are we uh, therefore bound? I've addressed that uh, to some degree already. Some of the details uh, here don't necessarily specifically apply. Uh, we, it speaks of parliaments. Now, again, uh, Canada has a parliament. The United States doesn't have a parliament. It has a Congress. Some of these details um, will not specifically apply to every uh, government and uh, every nation and every society. But again, those circumstances or those uh, details uh, may be changed without changing the substance of this covenant. Uh, as the General Assembly said, no law nor no constitution can alter or change the obligation of this covenant upon a nation. A nation may change its name, but that doesn't mean it's no longer bound by this covenant. It may separate from England, Ireland, or Scotland, but that doesn't mean it's no longer bound by this covenant. It may not have a parliament, it may have a congress or some other uh, form of civil government but it's still bound by this covenant and so the details of the circumstances uh, can be altered to the specific uh, situation in which a nation uh, that's a descendant of Great Britain might be in today and that can be altered but the substance still binds the substance of this covenant so let's consider article 1 uh, very briefly article 1 uh, speaks to the issue of an ecclesiastical covenant. You, mentioned, you remember I said the Solemn League and Covenant is an ecclesiastical covenant, it's a civil covenant, and it's a personal covenant. So we're, we'll see in, each, uh, in this covenant each of these. But first of all, Article 1 and Article 2 both speak to this issue of uh, an ecclesiastical covenant. It says in Article 1 that we shall sincerely, really, and constantly through the grace of God endeavor in our several places and callings the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland 
in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government against our common enemies. The reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government according to the word of God and the example of the best reformed churches and shall endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for worship and catechizing, that we and our posterity after us may as brethren live in faith and love and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. Okay, first point about Article 1 is that it does very clearly indicate this is an ecclesiastical covenant. Secondly, notice in this Article 1, the preservation, it says the, that this covenant is, is given to, to uh, let me get the word, wording here, endeavor in our several places and callings the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland. But on the other hand, it says that it's to, to um, endeavor the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland. So preservation of the reformed religion in Scotland, reformation of the reformed religion in, in England and Ireland. Now, why is that the case? Why the different use of words? That's because Scotland was already a reformed nation. It ranked right up at the, the very apex and top of the reformed nations in the world at that time as far as their level of reformation, their level of purity. It wasn't on a perfect church, but they had reformed their church. But this document recognizes that England and Ireland had not reached that level of reformation and therefore it was not to preserve their reformed religion, but rather to reform their reformed religion. And so that was the purpose. Uh, and so it's important to recognize who was, at this particular time, the leader in Reformation in these three kingdoms. It was Scotland, very clearly. <clears throat> and then... In, in regard to this first article, let me also note that it talks about uniformity in religion. You see, that was the goal of this covenant, to bring about uniformity uh, in uh, uh, religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for worship and catechizing. Not to have many different beliefs, not to have many different practices of worship, not to have different views about church government, but to be like-minded in all of these areas. Which again, if there is only one faith, as the scripture teaches, that's what we ought to be striving for. One faith in all of these areas. And that was exactly what they uh, covenanted to do. Uniformity in religion. And then finally, notice in that first article, the emphasis upon the binding of posterity. That we and our posterity after us May his brethren live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. Article 2. <clears throat> Article 2 says, That we shall in like manner, without respect of persons, endeavor the extirpation of popery, prelacy, that is, church government, by archbishops, bishops, the chancellors, and commission, commission, uh, commissaries, uh, deans and deans and chapters, arch 
deacons and all other ecclesiastical officers depending on that hierarchy. Superstition, heresy, schism, profaneness, and whatsoever shall be found to be contrary to sound doctrine and the power of godliness, lest we partake in other men's sins and thereby be in danger to receive of their plagues and that the Lord may be one and his name one in the three kingdoms. So under Article 2, still we find this has to do with a, an ecclesiastical covenant. But let's note two things in this, uh, in this article. First of all, they were to endeavor the extirpation, the uprooting of popery, prelacy, superstition. Superstition would refer to all humanly devised practices in worship. Heresy, false doctrine, that's heresy. Uh, schism, unlawful, uh, unlawful uh, separation of affection and unlawful separation and actual deed from the one true reformed religion. Profaneness in speech, in life. And whatsoever shall be found to be contrary to sound doctrine in the power of godliness. They were bound, they bound themselves to uproot all of these things within these nations. And so this was not a, um, an issue of neutrality, uh, toleration of uh, various uh, views with regard to doctrine. Um, the things that were, were aimed at were those things in the confession of faith. Now, what things the covenanted reformation in its in its confession of faith and catechisms did not specifically address as to doctrine. There could be differences of opinion in some of these uh, uh, areas that are not specifically enumerated within the confession. You'll find amongst these men differences of opinion on, on various subjects. So it's not as though that they agreed down to every single detail on everything. But as they were saying, we bind ourselves to agree on these areas and these areas form our uniformity together. And so this was not, uh, in their opinion, getting down to such minute detail when you read the Confession of Faith and Catechisms that they uh, would say you can have different opinions about these things. No. Uniformity in this. Same thing with worship. And government, the things that are specifically stated in the uh, Directory for Public Worship and form of government, they bound themselves to. Now, if there were things not stated in those documents, then there was room for disagreement in some of those areas, but not in the areas that were stated. So there's no neutrality. It does away with this whole idea of uh, indifferency. Toleration in these areas that are stated is not permitted, whether in the church or state. Okay, Article 3. We shall, with the same sincerity, reality, and constancy in our several avocations, endeavor with our estates and lives mutually to preserve the rights and privileges of the parliaments and the liberties of the kingdoms, and to preserve and defend the king's majesty's person and authority in the preservation and defense of the true religion and liberties of the kingdoms, that the world may bear witness with our consciences of our loyalty 
and that we have no thoughts or intentions to diminish his majesty's just power and greatness. So here's the civil covenant, the civil aspect of the covenant, the, of the, the, what we would say the league. It was a civil league, and so this is where the league comes in. Uh, notice in this third article, preservation. One of the important things that's said here is that they believed in preserving lawful civil government. They were not against civil government. They believed that civil government, uh, all lawful civil government, was the ordinance of God. But they would not submit, however, to unlawful civil government. And therefore, we find in uh, this article that they said very clearly that they, were, they intended to preserve and defend the king's majesty's person and authority Notice, this is the qualification. In the preservation and defense of the true religion and liberties of this kingdom. So as long as the king was preserving and defending the true religion and liberties of the kingdom, then they would maintain his person and authority. They would submit. But if he did not do so, they would not conscientiously submit to his authority. And in fact, they did not do so to Charles I and to Charles II when they did uh, uh, refuse. In the case of Charles I, he refused to sign the covenant. He had been removed from the throne and they refused to put him back on the throne until he did sign the Solemn League and Covenant. With Charles II, he did sign the covenant. Actually, they wouldn't admit him until he did. And so he felt pressured into doing so. And so he signed it hypocritically. He, it was a, a feigned uh, obedience. And, uh, uh, but they wouldn't admit him into rule or authority until he did. They would not submit to him as the lawful king of that land until he did sign it. And so uh, that's very important to note here that uh, this document does preserve lawful civil government. And it does infer, finally, this uh, third article infers that civil government that does not serve the ends for which God has ordained civil government is not the ordinance of God. If it does not serve the ends that we find in Romans 13, 1 through 4, that does not serve those ends, then it is not the ordinance of God to which we are to conscientiously uh, pay allegiance and uh, to conscientiously submit to. Article 4 says, We shall also with all faithfulness endeavor the discovery of all such as have been or shall be insidiaries, uh, malignants or evil instruments by hindering the reformation of religion, dividing the king from his people or one of the kingdoms from another or making any faction or parties amongst the people contrary to this league and covenant, that they may be brought to public trial and receive condign uh, punishment as the degree of their offenses shall require or deserve, or the supreme judicatories of both kingdoms respectively, or others having power from them for that effect shall judge convenient. Uh, under this particular fourth article, all professed enemies of the Solemn League and Covenant who undermined the civil and ecclesiastical institutions 
are to be punished. They are to be censured by the church and to incur condign punishment. That is, punishment which is deserving uh, from the civil magistrate. All professed enemies of this covenant. Article 5 says, And whereas the happiness of a blessed peace between these kingdoms denied in former times to our progenitors is by the good providence of God granted unto us and hath been lately concluded and settled by both parliaments, we shall each one of us, according to our place and interest, endeavor that they may remain conjoined in a firm peace and union to all posterity, and that justice may be done upon the willful opposers thereof in manner expressed in the precedent uh, article. So under the fifth article, here we find the individual, uh, specifically individual aspect of the covenant, where we find that uh, it says, we shall each one of us, according to our place and interest, every one of us individually, endeavor these things. Each one, according to his own place, is to maintain the union of the Solemn League and Covenant. He's to preserve it. He's to, to promote it. He's to, uh, he's to uh, point out those who are undermining it. And notice again in this fifth article uh, that this is binding upon all posterity. It says that they may remain conjoined in a firm peace and union to all posterity. The sixth article. We shall also, according to our places and callings in this common cause of religion, liberty, and peace of the kingdoms, assist and defend all those that enter into this league and covenant in the maintaining and pursuing thereof, and shall not suffer ourselves directly or indirectly by whatsoever combination, persuasion, or terror to be divided and withdrawn from this blessed union and conjunction, whether to make defection to the contrary part or to give ourselves to a detestable indifference or neutrality in this cause which so much concerneth the glory of God, the good of the kingdom and honor of the king. But shall all the days of our lives zealously and constantly continue therein against all opposition and promote the same, according to our power against all lets and impediments whatsoever. And what we are not able ourselves to suppress or overcome, we shall reveal and make known that it may be timely prevented or removed, all which we shall do as in the sight of God. Under the sixth article, we find here that this is a covenant. We covenant with one another as well. We bind ourselves to one another to defend all who stand by this covenant. All those who take this covenant, are, uh, we are bound to defend. We're bound to, to help and assist in a way that is a super added obligation uh, that is placed upon us because this is a, this is a solemn uh, covenant that we bind ourselves to God to help and assist to defend all those that enter into this covenant. And so this is, this is uh, again, not saying that those who, who might enter into this covenant and do something entirely foolish, unwise, uh, 
and uh, cause some kind of unlawful insurrection or something like that. It doesn't indicate we're bound to defend uh, every foolish deed and act that someone may do, but we are bound to defend every single person who stands for this covenanted reformation. And as they agree with it, and as they practice it, we're bound to defend them and to help them and assist them and, and uh, to the glory of God. And uh, the next thing under the sixth article I'd note is just uh, there is no division to come between those who have entered the Solemn League and Covenant. Uh, this is a covenant of union, of union, uh, uniformity and union. And so uh, it very uh, strictly speaks against the vision of, uh, of schism within the body. And so it's, it's a covenant which, uh, which, which uh, elaborates on, which really promotes true biblical unity, unity that's built upon the truth. Not just saying, let's just get together uh, under one roof, but this is a covenant that is based upon uh, covenanted uniformity and truth. And then uh, we see in this sixth article, defection from the Solemn League and Covenant is condemned. Defection is condemned. I'm trying to find that uh, specific section where uh, it mentions that. It says here, um, <clears throat> that, you, that they are covenanting themselves to assist and defend all those that enter into the League and Covenant in the maintaining and pursuing thereof and shall not suffer ourselves directly or indirectly by whatsoever combination, persuasion, or terror to be divided and withdrawn from this blessed union and conjunction whether to make defection to the contrary part or to give ourselves to a detestable indifference or neutrality in this cause which so much concerneth the glory of God. Defection from the solemn league and covenant is sin. By all of those who are bound by this covenant, to defect from this covenant is sin. And therefore, because this covenant embraces all of the standards of the Westminster Assembly to defect from the standards of the Westminster Assembly is to break this covenant. And we see finally in the sixth article um, that this is an article, this is a covenant, as I mentioned earlier, that other Christians, other Christian churches are encouraged to join in this covenant, a true ecumenical covenant founded upon the truth. When it says, that this is to be an encouragement to other Christian churches groaning under or in danger of the yoke of anti-Christian tyranny to join in the same or like association and covenant to the glory of God, the enlargement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the peace and tranquility of Christian kingdoms and commonwealths. And so that, I think, uh, takes care of our rather extended uh, treatment of the, of the Solemn League and Covenant. And uh, I wonder if there would be any questions you might have or observations or comments.
before we end uh, our study this evening. Yes, Lyndon? Constitutions that are made by men, such as the Canadian Constitution, even though it does recognize so-called the supremacy of God and the rule of law, uh, are they uh, then they're just equally as broken, not easily as broken, because they weren't made before God, but this, that's the reason this one stands. Uh, it can't be changed unless the ends are met. So you're, you're uh, looking at the, say, the Canadian Constitution, which in the Constitution recognizes uh, a God yeah. and specifically mentions Him, yeah. and and uh, as and why that does not stand as opposed to the covenant, the solemn league and covenant. Why that does stand? Well, yeah, that's that's commendable. The fact that God is mentioned in the Canadian Constitution, because in the U.S. Constitution, God is not mentioned at all. Um, uh, is the Bible uh, or God's Word or anything like that mentioned in the con- in the Canadian Constitution? No. Okay, just the just the the, the name God or something to that effect. Okay. Um, See, the, the Solemn League and Covenant, which, uh, again, um, the, based on what has been presented this, this uh, evening, uh, Canada is bound by that covenant. Now, nowhere in its constitution does it recognize uh, that, that covenant. If, if you do not recognize something of that nature in your constitution, and certainly, in all of its laws, it does not recognize that that covenant. It's therefore abjured that covenant. And so that covenant hasn't been owned, subscribed to, uh, maintained, promoted by, by the Canadian uh, Constitution. And so it has turned its back upon, therefore, the Solemn League and Covenant. Even though it may, again, mention the word God, and even if you were to go back to uh, when that constitution, the Canadian constitution was written, that the word God meant at that time predominantly the Christian God, even if that were to be the case. uh, Certainly, the way it's interpreted now uh, would not be that it refers strictly to the Christian God. Um, uh, I don't think that any court of law would uh, maintain, you know, uh, a distinctly Christian uh, idea about the the uh, uh, the way in which the law is to be applied today. Um, the Canadian Constitution doesn't mention, furthermore, that it is uh, that it it is to be ruled by God's laws, by the Word of God specifically, and so. What becomes, therefore, its highest standard in its own constitution is itself and the laws that it determines, not God's word. And so, you know, there are many fallacies, I think, uh, that would indicate uh, how defective, uh, uh, you know, that constitution is. Right? Was it religious persecution that provoked many uh, English people, uh, I presume, Puritans or Presbyterians to? move to the States, throw off the 
persecution at the time. What were they being, first question, what were they being persecuted for? Well, most of the uh, movement from uh, England to the uh, to to the New World to to New England uh, was much earlier than the uh, uh, Solemn League and Covenant. It was before Presbyterianism was in power. It was a while prelacy and the divine right of kings and, and Erastianism was ruling within England. And so most of it uh, was during that time. They were, they were in fact, uh, fleeing the, the religious oppression of, um, of Erastianism. And most of them uh, were, uh, in fact, independents that uh, left England. They were Puritans, but they were independents, not Presbyterians, uh, for the most part, that fled to, uh, to New England. And when was that time period? Of oh, it was with, uh, within the first dec- decade of the uh, 17th century, so from, six, say, 1603 uh, to um, uh, 1630s, you know, 20s, 30s. In that area, I mean, there was there were, there were people who were I think steadily migrating to the to the to the new world, uh, but I think that um, uh, the establishment of those colonies was during those that period of time uh, that that I just mentioned. Um, by the year 1776, would you say there was a strong Presbyterian representation in the new world at that time or not? Oh yeah, there. I mean, in, in name, there was there was a strong representation of uh, of, uh, of people who identified themselves as Presbyterians by 1776, for sure. But uh, a vast majority of them had, by that time, uh, followed in the footsteps of the Revolution Church and and uh, did not uh, see any binding um, obligation upon them to own the covenants. Even though they recognized themselves to be Englishmen, and they very clearly stated they were Englishmen, they then that's why they were. Uh, that's why the Declaration of Independence was written because they had rights as Englishmen, and those rights they said were being denied. So they claimed their English citizenship, but they did not say, and they they did not own the fact that they were bound by the Solemn League and Covenant, which England was bound by, having taken it. The, uh, obviously, then the predominant amount of the framers of that constitution were not Presbyterian. Uh, how many of the uh, framers of the constitution were Presbyterian? Um, again, I think that uh, there were probably uh, the. I, I don't know the exact amount, but I think there's probably uh, the two main uh, religious. Uh, Representatives of religious bodies were Presbyterians and uh, and uh, Episcopalians or Anglicans, the two major bodies represented. But again, they were Presbyterians who had defected from Presbyterianism uh, of the Solemn League and Covenant. And so the United States, you know, uh, so often. You hear people today want to go back to the founding fathers. They want to go back to the Constitution and those constitutional ideas. Well, if we're going to really see true liberty established in, in the United States, 
then we have to destroy, have to start from scratch because the Constitution, as we've already said, doesn't mention God. It doesn't mention, it says in fact that that Constitution is the supreme law of the land. It doesn't mention anything about Jesus Christ uh, at all. And so it has, uh, and it certainly hasn't owned the covenant, uh, the Solemn League and Covenant. And so uh, all, for all of these reasons, it's not a, a constitution that is founded upon, uh, uh, upon the, uh, a firm foundation. It started off on the wrong foot, in other words. Any others? <clears throat> All right, thank you very much for your your questions and your uh, attention this evening. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.